Open your Bible with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 2, 1 Peter, chapter 2. I study and I read from the New American Standard Translation. I'm content that it is a quite literal rendering of the New Testament Greek and and good for exacting study in God's Word. That's also the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. If you'd like to use that Bible, you'll find our text on page 1212, 1 Peter chapter 2. Here at Good Shepherd Church, we consider every word of the Bible to be, quite literally, God-breathed. Therefore, every portion of Scripture has in it an eternal weight of glory. My pulpit ministry reflects that conviction. So, we pretty much study the Bible chapter by chapter, even verse by verse. And today, we move forward in this second chapter of First Peter and we'll focus our attention today on verses 4 through 10. But wanting to keep those verses in their preceding context, our scripture reading at this time will begin at verse 1 of chapter 2 through to verse 10. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, And to this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, take now your own words in the writing of the Apostle Peter and bring it home to our hearts. Renew our minds and transform us forever by it for your glory and the honor of Christ, we pray. Amen. The titles I eventually give to my sermons are not all that uh, significant, usually, nor are they particularly profound. But this morning, I do hope we can answer, in part, the question, what does God want you to be? What does God want you to be? You know, it is significant to me that as a pastor... I almost never get that question. While I have long since lost count of the number of times that sincere followers of Christ will ask me, what does God want me to do? I don't get the question, what does God want me to be? I often get the question, what does God want me to do? It's an important question, this matter of what to do. I know that. But the Bible's emphasis is actually much less about what it means to discern God's will concerning what he wants us to do. The Lord who has redeemed you with his own precious blood is far more interested in what he wants you to be more than what he wants you to do. In fact, I have grown in my conviction that it is best for us to hear what he wants us to be and that the doing matter, what he wants us to do, is something that will follow. Our wise Heavenly Father gives his children, by the way, considerable freedom when it comes to making choices. His word would teach us wisdom, not necessarily provide us with signs or handwriting on the wall or impressions. As he teaches his children wisdom, he expects them to make good choices, but there's a great deal of liberty in that. But his greater concern for us has more to do with discovering our true identity In Christ, what we are to be. I suppose I'm saying that God is pleased when we are more about being than doing. That our doing finds its origin in what we are becoming. Once we have, as Peter puts it in verse 3, tasted the kindness of the Lord. So the question is, what does God want us to be? How are we to think about ourselves? The answers to that vital question, I believe, unfold over the next few verses. So note in verse 4, it all begins with our coming to Him. Coming to Him. 
The text says coming to him as to a living stone. Now, Peter is once again going to use illustrative picture language to communicate spiritual realities. All throughout his epistle, he draws upon the experience of the Old Testament saints. So this use of the term living stone picture would otherwise seem very odd, I think, until he sets it immediately at verses 6 through 8 in the context of quoting certain key Old Testament verses. They are specifically Isaiah 28.16. He quotes Psalm 118.22. And then he comes back to Isaiah and selects a verse at chapter 8 and verse 14. Those three Old Testament prophecies are clearly speaking of the Messiah. And we know then that it is clearly speaking of Christ Jesus. And while the Old Testament uh, Israel had her hopes in a, in a tabernacle and later a temple built with hands, made with, by the way, dead stones. I mean, there is a reason why we come up with sayings like this. You can't get blood from a stone. The Old Testament temple was built from stone, real stones. And then what became their sin of tragic unbelief blinded their eyes to the one living, life-giving cornerstone that would be the beginning and source, listen to the difference, of a temple, the Bible says, made without hands. To be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, bought with the blood of the living stone, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That's in verse 9. What does God want me to be? And we've said that the first step that Peter gives us is coming to him. Verse 4, and then recognizing him, that is Christ, to be the place where God's presence is experienced, is known. To be founded upon that spiritual cornerstone, we become living stones, Peter says, to be a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Verse 5. God wants me to be joined to Christ, cemented really, and joined to all other believers to be the temple of God, His dwelling place on earth. Where it is no longer one tribe of Levites, but where every true child of God becomes a priest. Serves in a priesthood, Peter says, offering up, not blood, but spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The blood now has been shed once and for all, the precious blood of Christ. 
And these sacrifices, these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, we could ask the question, how are they acceptable? How is anything acceptable to God that we would do? Peter says it must be, quote, through Jesus Christ. This truth, again, the truth of verses 4 and 5, I want you to see, sit on the foundation of the Old Testament shadow, the building of an earthly temple, which to the Jewish people was also the nearest dwelling place of God, where, in fact, the priests did serve him night and day, 24-7. They kept the fires burning. They served with sweet-smelling sacrifices of repentance, prayers, and praise. The parallel here to the Apostle Paul's teaching, in fact, as well as Peter, is unmistakable. I'll not ask you to turn there, but I want you to listen. Now we've read Peter's words. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Himself a Jew. Most of you know these two verses by heart. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, all that you are, a living and holy sacrifice. Here's the same words. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That word perfect meaning complete, as in completeness in Christ, growing in Christ's likeness for the child of God. You see where it is still more about what we are than what it is that we do. What does God want you to be? Peter says you've tasted the grace of God. You have come to Christ. Now, you are to be fast joined to Him like the stones of a temple. And your whole life's journey parallels or mirrors, frankly, the life of the Old Testament priest. I dare say this has not been widely understood among far too many professing believers. And it's an identity the Scripture's clear about that I want to communicate to you today. Have you thought of yourself lately as a priest of the living God? Consider the parallels. The Levites in the Old Testament, like everything else in the Old Testament, was serving as a type of New Testament saint, all believers. The one tribe out of the twelve, for example, who did not inherit any of the promised land. The Lord Himself, He said, would be their portion. We mirror that when we perhaps sing too lightly, and hopefully we sing with some meaning at least, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. It is the one tribe out of the twelve where the Lord would be the portion of His people. The one tribe out of the twelve who were admitted, by the way, into the holy place 
with special nearness to God in burning, for example, the appointed incense. The New Testament fulfillment of that shadow is when the scriptures teach us that prayers of the saints are like incense rising, a sweet smelling savor in the nostrils of Jehovah. We are priests. And so we announce here every Lord's Day that on Wednesday at 7 o'clock is an appointed hour. We come to serve our priestly function when we, as incense would rise, lift our prayers to God even for one another and for God's glory. They were the one tribe out of the twelve who pleaded before the mercy seat, you remember, confessing sin and experiencing peace with God through the blood of the Lamb. It's our form today when we commemorate the Lord's Supper. The one tribe out of the twelve who every day of their lives were to make themselves clean the ceremonial washings for the service and the purposes of God. They bore the vessels of worship. That was what God wanted them to be. What does God want you to be? How about a priest? Set apart for the full-time honor of God. No matter where you are or what you're doing or even if you should simply take a drink of water or eat a morsel of bread, do all what? To the glory of God. I remember how one dear sister responded when asked what she did in life. That seems to be our custom here in the Western world, isn't it? We meet someone for the first time and we say, well, what is it that you do. Or here in Southwest Florida, I often ask the question, what is it that you did before you came to Southwest Florida in retirement? That's what we do. Well, this one dear sister responded when asked what she did in life because her her circumstances were clearly quite humble. Oh, she said with considerable joy, I'm a full time Christian. Cleverly disguised as a seamstress. That's what Peter has in mind here. What does God want you to do? I don't think it matters that much. If you're a plumber, an engineer, a painter, a housewife, a preacher, a golfer, a teacher, a gardener, or even presently unemployed, the question is, are you one of those living stones? Join to Christ in the pursuit of holy service to the king. Remember, it's called a royal priesthood. It is to the king of kings that we serve in our office as priests. What privilege is ours? And we note in the text that this is a reserved office. Just like you had to be a Levite in the Old Testament if you were going to serve by day and by night in the temple. You have to be a born-again believer to have this privilege. The priesthood, the theologians call it, of all believers. 
Peter chillingly says in verse 8, if you'll look there, that the living cornerstone which made us to be living stones is at one and the same time, look at that in verse 8, a stumbling block and a rock of offense to unbelievers. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Look at this, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. You see, the gospel was proclaimed beginning in Genesis. Those who rejected the gospel are in effect stubbing their toes on Christ, tripping over Him as opposed to building upon Him. Those who today, who refuse to believe, are doomed. And so let me say, by the way, if there is anyone like that here this morning, John chapter 3 and verse 36 warns, Severely, the wrath of God is just abiding on the unbeliever. That's why sometimes we must preach the gospel with a certain urgency, and I don't hear much of that today. We're to cry out, Free from the destruction which is to come. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved. But back to our question. What does God want you to be? Verse 9 reveals, I think, an extraordinary resume, an extraordinary summary of the believer's new identity in Christ. Again, this vivid picture is drawn from the Old Testament, but understand it is totally transformed under the new covenant written in Christ's blood. Or let me just share something out of my own experience this week. I had the privilege of speaking to a young Jewish man this very week, just a few days ago, right in my study, in fact. And in the course of the conversation, I asked if he believed in God. And he said affirmatively, strongly, he said yes. At that point, he indicated to me that he was not particularly a religious Jew, nor did he practice any of the orthodox teachings of Judaism. But still, or perhaps particularly because I was exchanging words and conversation with an ethnic Jewish man, I will tell you I felt for those moments that strange mixture of both awe and sadness. I, I could say I was I sensed a privilege in exchanging comments with an ethnic Jew, just given the history. I also experienced a certain sadness. Because while it was clear he was among the chosen, ethnically speaking, I nevertheless felt this sadness because it was clear he was not yet. And may I say with my prayers and now yours, not yet among the chosen 
in Christ. You see, we must never confuse God's favor to ethnic Israel with his mercies unto salvation through Christ alone to both Jew and Gentile. But both of those Jews or Gentiles must in fact acknowledge Christ to be Lord, Savior, and Messiah. In verse 9, Peter is addressing, by the way, both ethnic Jews as well as a host of Gentiles, but giving them, thus giving to us, one new identity while using the same descriptive phrases which belonged to the Old Covenant days. You see it there in verse 9. But you, that is you who are not doomed for destruction, are a chosen race. It's borrowed from the Old Covenant. A royal priesthood mirroring the Old Testament. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. But as Christ said in the days of His anguish, approaching the cross, My kingdom is not of this world, and neither is this new nation. This really is one of those wow passages. I hope you're with me, most of you at least this morning. It's one of the wow passages in the unfolding history of redemption. It is a turning point that the temporal blessings of Israel of old have become the possession the spiritual and eternal blessings of all the redeemed, both Jew and Gentile, the church. It is the temple made up of living stones. It is a chosen spiritual race, a spiritual royal priesthood, a spiritual holy nation, a corporate and collective possession of God. Where out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, He's making himself a bride, the bride of Christ. Wow. This and so much more is what God wants us to be. Amen? If you want to not only know what God wants you to be, but you want to become that in day-to-day experience, you do well to discover in all of the Scriptures... Your true and new identity in Christ. Peter is naming only but a few. I guess I'm asking, what is your clever disguise? The question is, are you a full-time believer? We may differ one from another, but our true identity is in that full-time believer in Christ. Serving. Worshipping. You know... um, Deep in the recesses of my childhood impressions, I had the images of an old TV series come back to my mind. The old black and white drama ran between the years 1953 and 1956. I wasn't even a teenager yet, but I can still call up some images of that particular series, which was called I Led Three lives. How many of you know about it? That's right. No one under whatever is raising their hand. I led three lives. It was loosely based on the life of the real Herbert Philbrick, 
a Boston advertising executive who in those days infiltrated the U.S. Communist Party on behalf of the FBI. He did that in the 1940s and the TV show was based upon his life in the 1950s. In fact, Philbrick himself, the real guy, narrated each episode and all of the scripts, by the way, were actually approved by J. Edgar Hoover. Can you imagine TV dramas getting their approval from the FBI? Each dramatic episode opened with Philbrick's voice in the background. And here's what he said. The fantastically true story of Herbert A. Philbrick, who for nine frightening years did lead three lives. Average citizen, member of the Communist Party, and counter-spy for the FBI. Well, if we're going to take the Apostle Peter seriously, it's a little like that. Our lives take on the various identities that Scripture assigns to those who Peter addressed at the beginning of the epistle as strangers and aliens. Knowing that our citizenship is in heaven and that down here we have no lasting city, we lead lives that are meant, in fact, to subvert the powers of evil all around us. Even as we live quite openly for the honor of Christ. May I suggest that also is an increasingly dangerous mission in our day. It's here in the second half of verse 9. We will read the whole verse again, but catch the last part of it. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, so that you and I may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Get the picture there. This is what God wants us to be. Living in a dark world, proclaiming light. The excellencies of the light of the world Himself, Jesus Christ. God wants us to be, it says, His own possession. That's right, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Not with silver and gold with the precious blood of Christ. And why? Well, as I read the text, if I were put it in today's language, I'd say it's all just so we can brag on Him. So that others may also come out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let me ask you, what excellent things has Christ done in your life? And have you told anyone? about it lately. It's what He wants us to be. Finally, verse 10. We do well always to remember where He brought us from. Oh, that He would draw back the curtain of memory now and then. Show us where He brought us from and what we might have been. Or as he puts it in verse 10, For you once 
were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, does that not give you pause? Does the truth that you may have been appointed unto doom and destruction, but instead have become objects of His own mercy for His own glory, does not that fact inspire you and I to live not as three lives or even four, but to live all of the life we have, all the remaining days of our lives, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to all who have ears to hear. It wouldn't be such a bad thing, beloved, if you became so consumed with your role as a priest of the living God that some people would dread seeing you come near, cross the street to go down the other side, while others who by the same grace that opened your ears, hear in it the sound of life and to their nostrils a sweet-smelling fragrance of life. God will take care of who hears and who doesn't hear and who will listen and who will not, who will hate you for it and those who will love you for it. That's His business. What he wants us to be is a living stone in this temple of God. The only place where God really dwells in this earth is in the church of the living God.